0: What matters far more is who you are sharing those experiences with. And so what I try to do is a couple times a week, first thing I did is I cut out all unwanted social obligations. There are a lot of acquaintances or it's a call here, a dinner here, all of these things that like I almost wanted to do. I just cut all those down. And then what I did is like every Sunday, I spend it with my mom and I don't look at my phone, turn my phone on airplane mode, what have you. I just sit there, I don't work and I just hang out with my mom all day. That's one thing that I do. On Saturdays, I get together with my childhood friends. And for probably four or five hours, we get together, we order a pizza, and we play Mario Kart for four hours. And it's great. <laughs> On Fridays, if I want to like go out and meet people, that's usually like my going out and meeting people day. But it's like none of these are crazy, high-impact, high-intensity, massively fascinating activities. What's been most important is I've subtracted all the other noise in my life
1: and I've figured out like the most important people in my life. Welcome to the Rising Leader Podcast, bringing forth the new wave of rising leadership and helping leaders find purpose, connection, and results. This is your host, founder of Eluvians, Alex Kremer. All right. Welcome to the Rising Leader Podcast. This is your host, Alex Kremer, And if this is your second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth time listening to the show, welcome back. I'm so pumped and grateful that you are here. I am pumped about this conversation. You most likely know who this person is. You've most likely heard his beautiful and amazing voice online through podcasts, something along those lines before the wonderful Armand Farrakh. So, first off, Armand, what's up, dude? Good to see you here on this Friday afternoon, this wonderful podcast we're about to crush. You
0: know, it's so much more pleasant sitting across from you than from Nick, I have to say. Because my co host, and he has never called my voice beautiful or soothing or anything like that. And here I am just listening to the voice of a man who also has an amazing, soothing voice, Alex. <laughs> and you've been on our show at <laughs> once and you're about to record for a second time. I if actually just we just it. recorded
1: it the second episode two days ago.
0: Oh amazing. Look at See, I didn't even realize. And so you recorded with Nick and Jet.
1: Yeah, I was confused because I know now you guys are changing 30 minutes to President's Club. Now you have the leadership show. Now you have kind of the ones for the individual contributors. I was like, yo, where's my boy Where's? We were going to have two talks this week and then you didn't. You bailed on me, man.
0: Don't worry, there's going to be a third. And the third one is getting you on our new leadership show with Mark
1: Casaglo, who I believe has hired you twice. And so that's going to be a a fireworks show for sure. Yeah, he's pumped about that one. He's pumped for that one. I'm glad that you guys are putting him on there. But for those who don't know who you are, I'm going to give just like a little brief background in terms of, I guess I call it the resume, but it's something so much more than just your simple freaking resume here. So Armand, you are the founder of 30 Minutes to Presidents Club, and what I love about that, beyond just the fact that you guys invited me to be on a guest as a guest on your show twice, you guys are diving into sales tactics, sales strategies, toolkits. Probably, I, correct me if I'm wrong. I think you're the number one sales podcast out there, which is just freaking amazing. You guys have had such incredible speakers, and really, you're doing just really good work. And beyond that, you know, you're the former VP of Sales at Pave, which is very impressive because you made VP of Sales under the age of 30, which I'm gonna be honest with you. That was one of my goals, and I did not hit it. So I'm gonna dive into what you did to get there. It's okay,
0: here. man. You'll hear no. some horror stories. You're probably there's a reason you're still in the seat, and I'm not, my man. It's okay.
1: <laughs> the competitor
0: in me is like,
1: God damn it, Arvad, you just beat me out of this thing. <laughs> but beyond that, you're the former sales leader at Carta as well. So you've just been at two incredible tech companies, and you're a go-to-market advisor for three amazing companies. And I'm really excited about this conversation because we were talking about what do we want to really be going over? What's part of your message, part of your story? And you're like, it's hard because 30 Minutes of Presence Club is such a tactical show that sometimes we want to get a little bit more into the emotional, mental, spiritual journey that one actually goes on. So I'm just like stoked to learn from you and just how you became to be the badass you are. And I'm gonna start with like one first question here that's just gonna like, Toss it right over to you. What does it feel like to be Armand Farrakh? Like truly, like you're changing the game of sales. You've had an incredible track record of companies. You got one of the most recognizable sales podcasts out there. Like, what does it feel like to be the dude?
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, I you mentioned that you were gonna go in that direction. I didn't know you would literally ask, what does it feel like to be me? And it's uh it's funny, man. That here's how I can interpret that question is. What is the situation that I'm in today relative to where I was? So I was a VP of sales, and by all accounts, that is very much a corporate job. That is a W-2 job. Now I'm running my own thing at 30 Minutes to President's Club. So the way I might answer that is, what does it feel like to have walked that walk and stepped away from what is oftentimes the peak of a sales org into running my own business, which is, oddly enough, a podcast webinar series newsletter? I'll be honest, man, what happened when I left Paved to go full-time on 30 Minutes to President's Club is I was expecting this like massive release of, okay, there's not this pressure of reporting to a board. There's not the workaholic in me that's working 80 hours a week. There's not all of the obligations that come with being a people leader and all of that stuff. But I think what was really funny is that was the case for about a quarter because I went to Hawaii and I Literally laid on the beach and I did yoga and I surfed every day while recording podcasts. But then eventually, what I found is I began to seek out a lot of the things that I left at Pave. And that's sort of how I can describe what it feels like to be me today. Is what I learned is when I left Pave, I overcorrected from 80 hour work week, workaholic kind of guy to I'm going to lay on the beach all day, you know, do yoga, go surfing, sip a Mai Tai, record a podcast and chill. And that got boring really quickly. Today, I find that I'm in this like really awesome flow state that's between those two, which is, look, I still work weekends from time to time because I care a lot about this business. And Every Saturday, I go into a coffee shop, I write. During the week, I'm working really hard on the business, but I'm doing it for me because I love to build. And like that's the kind of person that I am is the most excited that I am. I didn't even realize we launched our sales leadership podcast yesterday. The most excited I am is like in the buildup to it. And then Nick and I were joking, we're like, oh, wait, that actually launched yesterday. And so what it feels like to be me is I'm constantly building and trying to do great things that give me intellectual satisfaction, while also building other things that aren't related to work, whether that's building deeper relationships, building deeper friendships, and building sides of my personal identity outside of work. That's what the leave outside of PAVE has really brought into my life. And that's sort of what it looks like today.
1: Mm. It's interesting to say because I just had John Itell, the chief sales officer at Demand Base on the show. And he talked about... He took a sabbatical. And he's like, you know, it was really hard because the first two months, all I ever wanted to do was just continue to do. (laughs) He's like, (laughs) we... Through our corporate jobs, through being a sales leader, whatever you're doing in tech, there's very much an achievement-oriented culture. It's like, Cool. If you're not doing something, there's usually this thing in the back of your brain of like, shit, I should probably be doing something. (laughs) I should be talking to someone. I should be prospecting. I should be working on this project, whatever it might be. So it sounds like what you did when you kind of left Pave is you took it over to the opposite end of the spectrum. You just freaking chilled. Yeah. And like, was there value in that at all? Or did it simply just teach you that, oh, I'm not a person who can just like have all this spaciousness. Are you familiar with the concept of an elimination diet?
0: Tell me more. So an elimination diet is, one common one is called Whole30, which is for 30 days, you cut out everything in your diet that could possibly be causing you any sort of allergy or harm or whatsoever. So it's everything from dairy to acids to processed foods to gluten to everything, even if you know that doesn't affect you. And the whole premise of it is you're supposed to strip down to the bare most plain foods that you could possibly eat. And then you're supposed to add one thing back intentionally at a time so you can see how those things impact you. I didn't go on an elimination diet, but I did go on an elimination diet with work. And so what I did is I didn't entirely remove work from my life, but I got pretty freaking close to removing it from my life. The first thing that I did is after I left PAVE, I advised them for about a month, give or take, just to get them up and running. And then I left to a surf camp for 10 days. I literally lived in a hut on the North Shore. And I remember you had to go and charge your phone at base camp, but your tent was completely separate. So you'd have to like leave your phone in this common area. And even if you were in the common area, it wouldn't get any reception. There were no outlets in your tent or anything like that. So what you find is that the first thing that happens in those couple of days is your mind is just processing all of these surface level thoughts what did I do last week? What's the thing that I forgot to do? How am I feeling about PAVE? What do I need to do at 30 minutes to President's Club when I go back? And those surface thoughts sort of swirl. They swirl, they swirl, they swirl, they swirl. And then two or three days go by. And you're like, okay, I can't really think about those thoughts anymore. And you start to like, look at the real stuff. And what made it even harder is the people that I was at the surf camp with were one was from Australia, one was from the UK. If you mentioned SaaS, they thought SaaS was attitude, so like no one even understands the concept of software sales. So like there is no way that I can talk about work. And what you realize in that moment is like, holy cow, I've truly been like so consumed by this thing. And I guess it's time to like figure out what it's like to live on the southern coast of Australia in a town of 150 people and get to know someone in a non-work related context. Those next seven days, I had so much fun and I learned so much about myself in terms of how little I had invested in an identity outside of work, that by the time I got out of it, I slowly, slowly, slowly reintroduced work into my life. But I almost forced there to be white space in my calendar, where I was uncomfortable sitting in the nothingness. And I forced myself to fill that white space, not with more work, but with things that were serving me as a human being, or bringing new relationships into my life, not just shoving back in a different form of pave, which would
1: have just looked like 30 minutes to President's Club. Mm. It's a very unique thing working in SaaS. (laughs) It's like we get so caught up in working in this world that we think everybody gets this bubble. Everybody understands the typology, the requirement that it takes, the pushing yourself. I don't know how many freaking times I've used the word grit in regards to working in SAS. yeah. And when you go to something, whether it be a surf club or a retreat or just anywhere else, and you talk to people who aren't, you're like, oh, so there's another way to live your life.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> It's like, oh, you end at five. Holy yeah. smokes. Like, what's that? I've never heard of that before. Mm-mm.
1: I have one of my buddies. He's a uh, doctorate of some sort, works as a physical therapist. And he's like, you know, one of the things I love about my job, he's like, I go to my job. I start at nine. I end at five, and then when I leave, I never have to think about my job. (laughs) And I was like, that is like the most bonkers thing to me. (laughs) I'm like, I'm always thinking about, not just my full-time job, but my work in general. It's funny, a lot of people say, don't associate your identity with
0: work And I actually think it's a pretty big fallacy because I'll tell you what I've learned after all of this is I'm not the kind of person where I don't want to work. And frankly, I'm not the kind of person where I don't want to work hard. I really enjoy working hard and building. And what I'm not comfortable with is working a nine to five where it doesn't mean enough in my life that I might not think about it after five o'clock. If I'm not thinking about it at all after five o'clock probably means if I did something for eight hours a day and I don't even think about it a little bit on the weekend, a little bit at night, a little bit afterwards, I mean, it probably doesn't mean very much to me. The key thing is that it's called work-life balance for a reason is during those eight hours a day or sometimes 10 hours a day, I want to be doing things that aren't pushing me to my edge of humanity where I can't stop thinking about it because I'm so burnt out. I want to have that eight hours a day be things that I'm excited to work out that I feel like are pushing me to my edge in terms of what it means for me to fulfill my full potential, right? So that when I'm thinking about them after work, I'm almost excited for the next day. But I'm comfortable enough leaving it and tying it because I have other things that I can do at the end of the day or on the weekend that aren't all attached to this thing. And I hold those things now in equal stature, to the things that I'm building at 30 minutes to presidents club because 30 MPC is very much still the main event in my life but there needs to be a co-main event and a co-main event and a co-main event there needs to be your whole like undercard and that was what didn't exist for me and now it does
1: what do you feel like you've started to create as other co-main events outside of 30 MPC cuz I I resonate so much with it I love having something like I feel this way with Alluvians, and I still work at Catalyst and like I feel in certain ways with this with Catalyst. It's like I love having the thing I'm like, ah, oh, I'm giving my life to this. Yeah. Right? Like this is why I was put on earth to give, to birth this amazing thing that others can gain value from. Mm-hmm. So how do you almost like disentangle yourself from the burnout, the stress of that? And then also, how do you actually start to find other co-main events as you termed it?
0: Yeah. So Matthew McConaughey, great book, Green Lights. There's a point where he talks about when you're not sure what to do next, just start by subtracting. And so let's say you have the main event. The first thing you might choose to do is go on an elimination diet like I did, whether that's vacation or something else. But then the second thing that you should do is you should start to remove all the other like noise and allow yourself to be bored a little bit mm. on the weekends. And I found that there were times where like I would leave a full Saturday or a full Sunday and I would just leave it untouched. And I'd be like, let's see what happens to my mind. Like when I have like an empty Saturday and I say, I'm not allowed to work. You'll be interested. Like you'll be amazed, like how antsy you get. And then when you add one more friend interaction you're like, oh my God, this is amazing, right? It's because it's like, oh, it actually hits the vein again because I'm not so overstimulated with just like stacking my week like crazy. And so the way that I can answer you, Alex, is that I think a lot of times when people are like, okay, so what do you do now? Do you surf every day? Do you do yoga every day? Do you Are you doing pottery? I guess that's the new thing nowadays. People do pottery. No, I don't have like a million fascinating, interesting hobbies. And the reason for that is I think what matters much less is what you are doing. What matters far more is who you are sharing those experiences with. And so what I try to do is a couple times a week, first thing I did is I cut out all unwanted social obligations. There are a lot of acquaintances, or it's a call here, a dinner here, all of these things that like I almost wanted to do. I just cut all those down. And then what I did is like every Sunday, I spend it with my mom. And I don't look at my phone, turn my phone on airplane mode, what have you. I just sit there, I don't work, and I just hang out with my mom all day. That's one thing that I do. On Saturdays, I get together with my childhood friends. And for probably four or five hours, we get together, we order a pizza, and we play Mario Kart for four hours. And it's great. <laughs> On Fridays, if I want to like go out and meet people, that's usually like my going out and meeting people day. But it's like none of these are crazy, high impact, high intensity, massively fascinating activities. What's been most important is I've subtracted all the other noise in my life. And I have figured out like the most important people in my life. And I've said, because you've removed all the other noise in your life, when you're sitting with those people, you're actually able to like sit and not think about other things. You've probably had the situation where you've hung out with a bunch of friends and like, you're not there. You're like almost waiting for the next thing to happen while you're at the dinner with the friends. That's a good sign that either one, you should be subtracting that dinner from your life or two, there were other things in your life that were going on, and you should subtract those
1: because it's not even allowing you to do the thing that you're supposed to be present doing right now. It's almost like hitting me too hard, what you are saying right now, because there is this feeling sometimes in where go, go, go. It's like even when we finally get to the place where we're trying to go, we go on a date with somebody or we go to an event that we've been looking forward to, once we're there, then it's just like, okay, what's the next thing? Yeah. Where it's preventing us from really being present is, I mean, that's the negative side of the achiever mindset. It's like build, grow, attain more, more. Yeah. And that translates to every part of our life. It's just like, if that's how we're showing up in sales, guess what? That's how we're showing up in every other area of our life. I was at a retreat last week. Actually, this is very interesting. And at the retreat, there's a lot of going inward, deep excavation. And Gabrielle Blackwell, who I believe you know, she was at the retreat and she brought these oracle cards. And before each really deep kind of ceremony thing, I'd pull an oracle card. And for three ceremonies in a row, I pulled the pilgrim card, let alone there's 50 cards in this deck. And each time I pulled the pilgrim card, I was like, what the hell? What is this about? And I'm reading this book by David White book about the identity of the pilgrim. And essentially what it says is your outer world is simply a reflection of your inner world. And it just nailed me so hard of like, if in our inner world we're going, we're trying to build so much, our outer world is truly going to be a reflection of that. Totally. gonna prevent us from being present. Completely right. So, I want to kind of go back a little bit about like where all this came from, because we talked about you became the VP of sales at PAVE before the age of 30. And this was something that you had mentioned you wanted to do. This was a massive goal of yours, VP of sales under 30. I'd just be curious, like, how did you first off end up doing that? Because there's a lot of people who are hungry and wanting to do that. Why did you want to do it? And lastly, was it all it was cracked up to be, built up to be? Was it What was it actually like? Yeah.
0: So let's start with, normally I would say start with why, but let's actually start with the how, because I think I gave you enough of the touchy feely and the how it felt and all, and we'll get into that in just a second, but let's talk about the how. So there are a couple things that I think really matter if you want to accelerate your career. And I've thought a lot about how to break this down simply. There are two pieces of it. The first piece is you need to be able to identify really good opportunities. And when those opportunities are presented to you, you need to sprint through those doors. And the number two, when you are put alongside everyone else who has also selected those opportunities, you need to be the best in the world in that domain, in that pool that you've picked. So let's start with the latter, actually. I think there are many things that I'm horrible at. I don't know if anyone's looking at this on video or you've seen videograms of me. I don't look like the stereotypical salesperson. I'm not like the six foot seven, like tall, charismatic human being. I'm an extremely introverted person. Contrary to popular belief, despite the fact that I run a podcast, but I think there are two superpowers that I do have. Number one is pattern recognition, is growing up as a quieter person, someone who wasn't as like socially comfortable. I used to break down everything from like, what backpack strap did the cool kid carry his shoulder on? Or if I saw a seller really nailing a negotiation when everyone else is ooing and eyeing, I was like, okay, the first thing they said was this. The second thing they said was this. The third thing they said was this. Let me go watch 10 calls. Every single one of those calls follows the exact same pattern. Every single one. Let me go watch the bad reps. They all follow the same three patterns, but they do it the wrong way instead of the right way. I'm like, okay. So now what I've done is I've been able to break down any star performer's best characteristics into three steps. And if there's one superpower that I have that I think carries me really well, it's the 30 Minutes of President's Club, is I have that ability to do pattern recognition. And I'll explain how this actually gets you career acceleration in just a second. Number two is I think I'm reasonably good at motivating people, whether that's speaking to a room or I took a lot of pride in being able to manage people who are not easy to manage. And usually what you'll find is the number one enterprise seller is not an easy person to manage. If you really want to make it far, for example, Morgan Mello, all-time top producer at PAVE, amazing human being, lover to death, she will even admit I'm not the easiest person to manage. You know why? She's not going to manage someone that she doesn't feel like she can learn something from. Morgan's a better seller than me. She's the Michael Jordan. And in this case, I'm the Phil Jackson. And what allows me to help motivate her is I can break down what she's doing when she doesn't even realize it and get her to repeat it too. And so it was the combination of my ability to break things down into threes. A cold call is broken down into openers, value props, objections, discovery call, intro, discovery questions, next steps, negotiation, giving the price, handling the first reaction, landing at an ultimate Agreement at the end. Everything can be broken down into three steps, and each one of those steps can be broken down into three more steps. What it allowed me to do is when there were moments of opportunity in my career, and the head of sales development at Carta left the position, and there were three SDR managers running around with their heads cut off. A new VP of sales, now CRO, came in, and all of the SDR managers were speaking at the tactical level of we need to make more cold calls, we need to do better emails. They were speaking the one thing at a time. I was the number one rep at Carta, and I was known for being an extremely good prospector. And I set up time on his calendar and I was like, here's the playbook. I was like, here's the playbook you could use to train every single SDR step-by-step. And here's how I became your number one rep. And here's how I could teach it to 30 of your reps. I know I've never been a manager before, but will you let me manage managers and do this for you? Otherwise you can put me back in the seat. And that was how I went immediately from number one AE to what was essentially a it was a senior manager role, but I was head of sales development. It was essentially a director role. I was running a team of 30. And it was solely because I had the ability to break things down into a way that anyone could understand. In fact, it was almost a benefit that I was not a talented human being. And then I could break it down to a rep or I could even break it down to a VP or a CEO level and they could understand why it was gonna work. And that was the sign that I could create predictability in an organization. So that was a really long-winded way to explain how the things that allowed me to get into this role.
1: Mm. I think the ability to break down complex topics into simple frameworks so you can teach it is, I would argue, the most important thing that a sales leader can do. Probably any leader, not even sales leader. Especially if you are training an SDR team or an SMB team, for sure enterprise. But like it's something that very few people actually have the ability to do. Sales professionals are hungry for that shit. Like teach me the frameworks that insert product here, insert value prop here. I can close a deal because I know the different stages that it takes. Would you say that you developed a passion for that? Or was that just something you're like, man, I just like like this and I like teaching it. Is that always kind of how you were? This episode is sponsored by Alluvians. Alluvians is helping sales professionals and sales leaders master the art and the craft of sales by transforming the inner game. We got a phenomenal community of over 30 professionals who are really getting together, not just on what we're here to work on, but to really be with each other and build great friends, relationships, and who knows? Maybe find new wonderful job opportunities. So you got our next Arise Immersion coming February 23rd through 25th this upcoming year. And last time we had over 50 people come to this one. It's going to be bigger, better, stronger, and it's going to be a lot of fun. So if you are interested, make sure you check out alluviance.co. That's A-L-L-U-V-I-A-N-C-E.co to learn more information. Can't wait to see you there.
0: Yeah, I'm a little bit of a nerd about the craft of sales. And the reason for that is I get excited when someone asks me a question and I don't know the answer to it. Because usually you'll get a really, really long pause and I'll be like, ah, that's a sign that I haven't broken it down. I was like, ah, you pointed out a gap in my knowledge. And the most exciting moments for me is when I can break down the anatomy of how the number one rep ran a discovery call when discovery is an extremely nuanced concept. And then I can take what that Michael Jordan did and I can give it to a insert new reps name here. And I can see them do something that that top rep did. And that's what gets me excited. And so when you ask about the why, behind why I chose the role is, I'll be honest, like the most boring point for me, Alex, is once I figure it out. So I became the number one rep at Carta about six months in. And those first two months, I sucked at it, but I just broke everything down. But then once I figured out the machine, I was just cranking the wheel. I think I did like something like 350% in my last quarter and got paid more doing that job than I was as the head of sales development, but I didn't care because it wasn't exciting to me because I figured out the job for myself. And I knew that if I just kept doing this job, I would continue to perform well. The most fun thing is figuring out how to figure out reps and figuring out not only the concepts that would break down the sales thing, but then translating those to a rep And letting them fit within the framework, but still develop their own unique style. And once they found their style, while still keeping the fundamentals of like, you got to set an agenda, right? You got to get people talking on a discovery call, but they figure out how to do it their way with the right nudging and guidance. Once it locks into place, that magic moment when you almost see it snap in and they're like, oh, I get it. That's the stuff that's so addicting to me. And it's even more addicting when you see it happen at the scale of 30 or 40 reps
1: when you're at the director VPN beyond level. Yeah. So let's dive into that right there, because I think that goes into like, what it end up being? Being a VP of sales or even just being a leader? Because I feel like before we move into leadership, we have these big grand ideas of what it can be. Like today, I actually interviewed a current SDR where we're going to bring on an SDR manager and he gave a big presentation on what he's going to do. And I'm like, I know where you're coming from right now because your eyes are much bigger than your stomach, i.e. this is a lot of work that you're talking about right here. And so, when you ended up going in and running the team, building out the company and the sales, was that hard? Was it as awesome as you thought it was going to be? You talk about like being able to coach the individual to allow them to both be themselves, yet also be able to apply this framework that you're teaching. What's it like? Yeah. So, there were parts of the job, not to give
0: a lame answer, there are parts of the job that I love, there are parts of the job that I didn't love. I think the more interesting pieces, there were eras of the job that overall in the entirety I loved. And then there were eras of the job that in large part I hated. And I think that's the, the slightly more interesting story to be told, which is probably the single best year of my career was the early days of PAVE. So I joined PAVE at $100,000 of ARR, about 100 k Damn, that's early. Yes, uh, that was early. Yeah. And so at the beginning of Q4 of 2020, we finished that quarter at 400K. So we grew by about 300K off of two reps, me plus our other first sales hire. Then from there, the goal was the year of the tax. And so if we went from 400K to 4 million, era, that would put us in the top decile of not just like startups, like Andreessen-backed startups, like blue chip startups. And by the end of the year, we hit six. So we blew out Target by 150%. And I'll tell you what was most exciting about it is... We went through like three phase shifts as a sales organization. The first phase shift was basically doing extended founder-led sales. And that was basically me working with my CEO to find product market fit, basically having him be my sales engineer on every deal. And that was so much freaking fun because it was company building. It was product building. I was like basically a second or third founder at the company. And we were building the product through sales. The second piece was building the first part of a culture picking those first three or four sales reps and seeing what happened when you added one person. When you add one person to a team of two, it becomes three, obviously there's math. But what you realize is literally 50%, your team has grown by 50%. And that means your culture can grow or shrink or be imploded by 50% as well, depending on who you hired. But those first four hires, man, just magic. Every time we brought someone on, usually what you see is like, as you throw more bodies at the problem in sales, the team gets worse as we brought on more hires, we were building out this magic roster of world-class club caliber sellers who also were still acting like founders. And that was the last phases when we had that team of six or seven by the end of the year. And it was just Popping off. And I remember we were about to hit 4 million just entering Q4. And we were like, we're going to blow this thing out of the water. And I've never seen a team so stoked to like every single new person they hired. The moment we hired some, they're like in their second week, they're like, can I close a deal? Can I add to the $6 million pot? And when we hit six, literally on the last deal of the year, everyone was just like, we all got together. We were hugging it out. It was easily the most fun I've had in my entire career, hands oh, down. Man. It was unbelievable where it got hard is when the job turned in two forms. Number one, it started to become a lot more of a, holy cow, the market's crashing and we were still doing well, but it became more about finding answers for the rest of the executive team and understanding the market and trying to pinpoint, is this an economy, a product or a sales execution issue? And spending more time reporting than actually solving the problem. And then number two, the process of just like adding more people and adding more and more and more and more people than frankly I've wanted to, right? That was the process where it lost its luster for me because we went from the magic team to the, oh my God, this thing's going off the rails kind of team. And it feels like the culture is becoming a little bit of the sacrifice. And that's where it lost a little bit of its luster
1: for Mm -hmm. me. That's such a hard stage of a company. I felt something so similar when we were at Outreach I remember we hit 50 million at the very end of Q4. It was like one of the last deals that got us to pass 50 million. And it was unbelievable. There was champagne in the office, people were cheering. Like everybody who was like there was just like felt in it, was so enrolled of just like, man, like even kind of similar to what you said at the beginning, it's like their identity was tied up in the job. Like this man companies are great. Therefore, I'm doing great. That was such a wonderful experience. But then when it gets to the point that you're trying to scale a company that's when it becomes really, really hard because it's almost like leadership is, I don't want to say you're having to use people, but there is a feeling of like, okay, let's use these people so that then we can just blow out our numbers so that we can keep on growing, so that we can then show investors we're good, so they'll invest more money, so we can go public. It became this hard, like, oh, no, this isn't fun. It becomes a math equation where people are the
0: numbers in the equation. And it's like number of people times... Quota equals your capacity in the team. If you're doing over 100% higher, because that means you have excess capacity. And it was like, okay. And so my job now becomes basically like, I just need to make the capacity model true, which is when we hire a rep, they hit quota, which means I just need to do pipeline reviews up the gills, to make sure that when we add someone, all deals are being managed with the same level of rigor because we're hiring people so quickly and you lose a lot of the slack in the line that allows you to have these breakout stars because you're allowing for that creativity and that time for like people to find their own unique selling style to actually happen. And I'm not saying those things aren't important. I'm all for having rigor and process. And uh, I'm an extremely operationally minded, process-driven person. But... I think there's a point where you're choking your deals so hard that you actually start to see diminishing return because the organization starts to focus more on the cleanliness of pipeline, the is my med pick filled out than
1: actually working the deals and making sure that they are being pulled over the line. Mm -hmm. That's good right there. You're throttling the creativity of reps because you say, hey, in order to be scaling this company, everybody needs to be doing the exact same thing, saying the exact same talk track, doing the exact same demo flow doing your deals exactly like this, and where there's value in that, it's almost like making it so that the people who maybe are not the best performers, they're going to be adequate enough to get the job done. But the people who are the lone wolves who actually can get it done doing their own way, you're preventing them from being their most authentic expression of themselves, which causes resentment. It's it's not fun. Yes, it becomes the... uh... We called it the cling to the middle strategy. Just like get
0: enough capable people running the playbook and we'll get to the number. Just like get them running the playbook. Don't take any crazy risks. That's where I'm like, you know, we got to 6 million off of a team of six. More than half that team had been hired in the back half of the year. The capacity model would have said you needed 10 reps to hit that number. But what happened is those early four, frankly, just made magic happen. And in Q4, Morgan Mello closed $750,000 as a single rep. This is a mid-market rep at the time. Our next two reps closed five hundred dollars pop. Mid-market quota was two fifty, dollars mm. right? And they were just making magic happen. And I think a lot of people are realizing that today is that more reps doesn't mean better. And now the market's actually overcorrected, which is the value of an elite rep is actually 3x the value of an average rep because they're going to take the small amount of inbound leads there are, and they're going to close them at double the win rate. And they're also going to cost you less, including less dollars and less management overhead and less culture overhead
1: as well. Yeah. Yeah, There's the fine balance of how do you scale a company with more heads while also be keeping your reps fat and happy. So they're actually winning a lot and they're working on the right deals. It's a hard equation to solve for. Yeah. So we kind of touched on this a little bit at the beginning, but How long have you now officially been full-time at 30 MPC? It
0: has been since the beginning of the year. So today is October 13th when we're recording this. And I
1: left PAVE right at the end of the new year. So call it January, February, if you count the advisory period. Okay, so we'll say 10 months, 10 months. There's a lot of people right now who are doing some sort of side gig or thinking about doing some sort of side gig. Even if it's you don't even have a freaking side gig. There's a lot of people who are starting to post more on LinkedIn because they say, "I know I need to develop my brand because I don't know what I'm gonna do with it, but I know I need to. going to do something with it." Yeah. So often people are at a race to get out of their W two. Yeah. I'm hearing it more and more. Right. When I talk to people about you know coming to the Rise Immersion, a lot of people when I say, "What's your three year vision?" They're like, "I want to be working for myself." This has happened more than ever before just because there's more opportunities to be doing it. There's more examples where it's happening. But what you've really done is you honored your time in your full-time job at PAVE, at Carta, that prepared you to be able to make the step. So how did being a SaaS sales leader, a SaaS sales professional, how does that translate into being a founder of 30NPC and fully fucking going for it on your own? <laughs> So to everyone who's thinking about going full time on your own thing,
0: this is where it is important to like ask yourself why. Just because you don't like your job does not mean that you should go do it because there are a heck of a lot of miserable stories around people who are shackled to their business. And it's very easy to switch job. It's really hard to switch businesses. A great example is if you ever look at the life of someone who is running their own restaurant, it is usually not a particularly fun life. They're usually chained to their own restaurant. And so just know that just because you own your own business does not mean that it is an enjoyable thing. There have been times where I've been chained to 30 Minutes to President's Club, and I'm like, holy cow, if we don't sell this sponsor deal, that means significant things for me personally. That's a little bit scary. But what I will say is how has it prepared me for this is originally we started as a podcast. And what you need to think about is what are the skills that I'm getting professionally today that could be used to build a business? So at the beginning, like sales is the art of asking questions. There's a reason you can do these interviews, man. All you've done before is like you've done discovery calls where you're literally getting other people talking, right? You have an unfair advantage as a seller. You also have industry or domain expertise being both a leader, so you can talk about these more leadership type of topics, but also being a domain expert in sales. So those things were two extremely helpful things for me. But then what I'll also tell you is that sales is one of those careers where you could take it anywhere, man. We prospect big name guests. So Nick cold called Jeb Blunt, the author of Fanatical Prospecting, to get him onto the show. And he was like the biggest guest we had had in a long time. We oftentimes are prospecting our sponsors. The way that we run our business is we sell 30 MPC sponsorships like a SaaS subscription. So you can't just sponsor one webinar. You have to go for a year. And we run all of our projections and our financial reviews. We're looking at a SaaS ARR model. And it's all of these things that were compounding from my time as a VP of sales that I've been able to use to basically turn 30 MPC into a software business that just has the mask of a media business. And it starts with just taking the one or two most important things that you spike hard at. Nick is obviously an amazing salesperson. For me, I was really good at breaking things down. And I was like pretty damn good at asking people questions and getting them to talk and half decent with a mic. And you can start a business off of only one or two skills. Because usually you're best in the world at only one or two things. So start a business or take one step forward on your business using the one or two skills that you feel like you have the superpower in. And then you can pull in all the other things that you've learned in life to create unfair advantages in your business.
1: Mm. Let me ask you this. So I had a therapy session two days ago. Shout out Shirley. She's been with me for three years now. And one of the things that she really talked about was happiness is simply letting out and being the most authentic version of yourself. Allowing the unique flavor of you to come out. And so I'm curious, now as you are doing this full time and running that, are you happier? (laughs) Oh yeah, I'm stoked.
0: (laughs) I'll tell you, there are a couple things that have come with hitting 30. At some point I would like to write a book called, Holy Cow, I'm 30 on quarter-life crises because I think I went through probably every quarter-life crisis you could have probably gone through. If you just take the list and in a relationship, left your corporate job, lived in Hawaii, started your own business, rethought all of your personal relationships, in a week I'm moving to New York. It's like everything you could possibly go through in a quarter-life crisis, I've gone through. it, And the reason for that is when you're 30, you, you have this look in the mirror moment. And this is what I had when I was a VP of sales, which is like, I don't regret a thing, man. I worked really hard. Really hard, harder than the vast majority of people out there. And like, for anyone who thinks it's bad to work hard, you can go like whatever you want. But the reason that I'm able to do the things that I did, that I'm doing today, the reason that I'm able to be financially independent, run my own business, do the things that I love, leave early to go to yoga class because Nick's going to understand we have an okay business on our hands is because I worked so hard in my 20s. And there was a look in the mirror moment where I was like, okay, I've reached the pinnacle of the sales org. And do I want the next 20 years to look like the last 10? Do I want 30 through 50 to look like 20 through 30? And the way that I answer that question is, if I continued to work from 20 to 30, or if rather, if I continued to work from 30 to 50 the same way I worked from 20 to 30, how different would my life look? And honestly, it wouldn't look that different. It would be like going after the CRO chair. So I'm like one step up. I was like, I went AE to VP in like six years, right? So now I'm going to spend 20 like crawling to CRO and doing that four or five times. Who wants to be the five times CRO champ? That job just sucks. <laughs> that's, that's, was that like, job
1: does sound fucking yeah, hard, dude.
0: <laughs> it sounds horrible, man. I don't like, you never meet a partner of a law firm who's happy. I don't know a whole lot of CROs who love the job and say they want to do it for 10 more years. They're like, I got me maybe one more in me and then I'm good, especially now. And what I'll tell you is I'm so grateful that I figured this out at 30 because I was like, hey, I can now reap everything that I did in my 20s. And I can put that in my back pocket because my career is in a really good place and still like chip away at my career and still build a lot while also aggressively attacking personal growth. And I never want to be that person who... Oh, man, you look back when you're 65, and you're like, all the things that I wish I did, I never want to be that. That was the moment that I had when I turned 30, as I was like, you're on the path to be that right now, dude. And you better stop. And I'll tell you, man, it's been so much fun. I'm working on things that I love. But more importantly, I have so many more people that I love in my life that I actually have room for that
1: make the work that much more enjoyable when I do choose to sit down at the keyboard or with the notepad. Mm. So well said, man. So well said. Well, I've got one more question here for you. But before I ask you, I just want to acknowledge you, brother, just for, man, you got some wisdom and uh, it's very enjoyable to be able to receive from that. So much of what you said, you said based on your own personal experience and your own trials, but your own successes. And I resonated a lot with them. And so I'm just grateful for you to be on here and, and to share that message. And Honestly, man, like you're moving out to New York. I just moved out of New York after two years. You're about to go on an epic adventure. And I just know from personal experience that city does something to you. And I know it's going to do something big for you, which, which I can't wait. So here's my final question for you. This show is called The Rising Leader Podcast. What do you view as the rising leader? One thing that I would always look to spot in people
0: is a lot of times What people do is they focus so much on learning the rules of what it takes to do a pipeline review, what it takes to forecast, what it takes to have a one-on-one, what it takes to do this, what it takes to invest in your team. And what happens is they do the table stakes everywhere in the organization. They just become like a good manager and then they become a good director and then maybe they become a good VP. When I think of the rising leader, I think of someone who is rising, obviously, and rising quickly. The things that I would look to spot are as follows. Usually, when you find someone who has risen the ranks really, really quickly, they are rarely good at everything. In fact, they usually have some glaring gaps. I'll give you an example. When I became the head of sales at Pave, I had never formally rolled up a team forecast yet, which is wild because I was running like SDR and SMB and I was rolling up manager level forecasts. But the number one thing that you should look for is who spikes so freaking hard in one or two things that it makes up for all the other deficiencies. I think of this in the context of sports. Oftentimes, there are certain fighters that if you take them down, they're done. But as long as they learn some takedown defense, they're not horrible at it. If you're on your feet with them for more than a minute, you're going down. Hmm. I will bet on that fighter any day over the person who's an okay striker, an okay wrestler, an okay something else. What you need to get really good at to be the rising leader is figure out what you are best in the world at. Spike freaking hard in that and then hire people to cover the things that you're not good at or get minimum viable good at those things. So you can play basic defense, but do not spend your time working on those defensive areas. Spend your time punching through the things that you spike at and selling yourself and building a brand about yourself around those things, because that's the only way you're going to break through the pack. You can't be above average in everything. You
1: have to be outstanding in a few things. Damn. That's what I'm talking about right there. That was a good mic drop to this. What are you really good at? And be fucking exceptional at that. Man, Armand, I appreciate you, man. Thank you for sharing your heart, your soul. If people want to get a hold of you, what is the best way to do so?
0: Find me on LinkedIn. And I also write the 30 Minutes to President's Club newsletter. So if you just go to 30MPC.com, if you want to hear some of my crazy thoughts, we also distribute all of our content through there. Just go to 30MPC.com. Some sort of pop-up will tell you to subscribe. To the newsletter so you can find us there too and go check out alex's episodes on 30 npc they're
1: freaking they're some of the best <laughs> holy smokes i appreciate that man well armand thank you so much my friend and for all those who attended if you know somebody who needs to hear this and i know you do make sure you hit that share button and make sure you just subscribe to the rising leader podcast but with that have an absolutely wonderful day peace bro Thanks for listening to the Rising Leader Podcast. Make sure you hit that follow button so you get notified every time a new episode releases. If you know someone who wants to take their lives and their career to the next level, send them this episode so we can all rise together. For more information, check out alluvians.co. We'll see you next time. And in the meantime, keep letting it flow. This episode is brought to you by Alluvians. Alluviance is helping sales professionals, sales leaders, and founders master the craft of sales by transforming the inner game. And in the past 12 months, we've thrown four retreats and impacted over 100 tech sales leaders, founders on not just getting better at the craft, but really working on the inner game, gaining clarity on their vision, and also overcoming what's holding them back. The best part is you'll be doing it in an incredible community of high performers who are also trying to do the exact same thing. Our next immersion is going to be this May 3rd through 5th in the beautiful Austin, Texas. And make sure you check out alluvians.co to apply there. Can't wait to see you.